Welcome to Savage Starlight, the officially unofficial podcast for The Last of Us on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about season one, episode four, but we're not talking about it. You're talking about it. I'm not crying. You're crying, Aaron. <laughs> I don't know. There was nothing to cry about in this episode, but uh, I hear there is plenty of feedback to talk about. Oh, yeah. No shortage of that. Um, do, I don't think we talked about this in the main podcast. The fact that this show continues to grow. It, uh, oh, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it posted like a 7.8 million share for I, whatever that that first I, you know, I don't think that's the the three day plus kind of number, but yeah, like I, we start off at five million and then it was up to like, you know, six, six point something. something. And now it's like uh, at the end of its run, House of the Dragon was about 10 to 11 million. It started that way oh. and just kind of stayed and maintained its audience. And, you know, someone pointed out that this just doesn't really happen. Um it, it was a case in the early going of the golden age of television when people were just finding out about streaming and stuff that like um, shows would gain steam over season over season. But through a season that you're actually each week about another million people mo- mosey on over and start watching your show. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. So that's that's really exciting. Um, also, a lot of people wrote in and said they were touched by my, the mere recollection of this damn dying pet poem mm-hmm. uh, that I misremembered the title of. So a lot of people wrote in and like, what is the what is the name of that poem? I want to read it for myself. I'm going through something similar, etc. Uh, it is May I Go Now by Susan A. Jackson. And again, it's uh, it's pretty, pretty strong stuff. I still am not thinking about it, so I don't get choked up. Um, but that's that's <laughs> yeah. uh, if you if you want pain uh or i guess comfort in the long term that's that's where mm-hmm. you go may i go now by susan a jackson all right t lou at baldmove.com t-l-o-u at baldmove.com is how you get onto this feedback show it's the only way to get on this feedback show uh have have a have your strongest take earliest as you can get it to me t lou at baldmove.com first up is rachel did either of you make the connection between the soundtrack played during frank's last day and the movie arrival the song on the nature of daylight by Max Richter. Of course, we know Max as torturing us on the left, the leftovers mm-hmm. with the ebony and the ivory. Uh, the nature on the nature of daylight by Max Richter is a song used in Arrival, where Louise, knowing uh, everything she has to lose, still makes the choice to start a family with Ian. Hmm. Tila uses the same song in the scenes of Frank's Last Day. I had a very strong emotional reaction to Frank's last day, likely because of the complicated emotions I had watching Arrival and recognizing the music from that film. After three pregnancy losses, I may understand Luis's choice better than many. The profound love you experience when you know someone, no matter how long, and how that can be worth the pain of their loss. In Bill and Frank's case, they spend their last day reflecting on their lives together, and Bill finds an unexpected fulfillment in his choice to bring Frank into his life. Both Luis and Bill know that choosing love brings with it the threat of sorrow, but it brings purpose to their lives that they would have never had without. Um, boy, Arrival packs a punch. Yeah. And I did not. I'm surprised because I just rewatched Arrival uh, late last year. It was kind of fresh in my mind. I went through kind of like a, a mini sci-fi a marathon for myself. Um and yeah, late stage Arrival packs a punch. I'm surprised I didn't recognize the the music uh as belong that film it's a great choice mm-hmm. can't go I wrong agree. with max richter if you're wanting to people to feel feel feelings 
Bradley from Indiana, fellow former Hoosier. Well, I guess he's a fellow Hoosier. I'm a former Hoosier. We used to be Hoosiers. We used to dig coal. I was just listening to your recap from episode three, and there was something you missed. You mentioned that I initially agreed with, but after rewatch felt totally different about. Hear me out. You both seem to agree that Bill's solo gun battle in the middle of the street was totally out of character for this normally very cold and calculated man who watches the infected get brained through his video monitor. While true in the face of things, I think it overlooks the love that Frank consistently brought out to this more irrational, vulnerable, and impulsive side of Bill. This is evident from the very first scene together where, against his uh, very much better judgment, he allows Frank, a complete stranger lurking in his backyard, into his home for lunch and then into his bed. Years later, in the strawberry patch, he wistfully admits that he never felt afraid until Frank showed up. In their last scene together, when he takes the pills in his own wine and gulps it down because Frank was his purpose. Pre-Frank Bill would have never taken his own life before his time had come. He was a self-proclaimed survivalist, after all, the objective antithesis of being suicidal. Giving all that context and intention, I can't believe that the writers of the show wrote a sloppy, careless shootout scene just because they couldn't do better than that. I think we're supposed to, they were trying to demonstrate, rather, that Bill realized that the Raiders Joel warned him of had finally come and that he was genuinely fearful that they could hurt Frank. So he acted impulsively and recklessly out of fear and love. Jim, what do you make of this theory? I mean, yeah, if that's the way you want to view it, sure. We're probably going to have to agree to disagree because I still think that love in this case would have been shown as preparedness by that character. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, I, I get where you're coming from, but I just fundamentally disagree. Yeah, I, I I feel the same way. Like, I think this is this is a possibility. It could be that Craig, in his mind, as a non-survivalist, thinks that you could be so emotionally compromised in this moment that you just lose all your practice and your training and your preparedness and you just, you know, uh, go out there panicky and just... Sh- sh- and I, I just... Yeah. I, I've known a couple guys with Bill's kind of mindset and I don't think they freak out in these. They might freak out afterwards, but they're not going to like when hmm. the shit actually hits the fan again. I'm not talking about your casual guy out a bug out bag and might fucking <laughs> hike out in the woods once a year and, and wonder what would happen if I'm talking about the people that like are that have two basements. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if you yeah. have two fucking basements, then you're not going to freak out if someone comes for your family. Uh, in the apocalypse. You're just not. I just don't think you will. Um, Mike H. from St. Louis says, in the Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring movie, there's a great chase sequence where the ring wraiths are chasing the hobbits through the Shire. The hobbits get caught in their overhang of tree roots with the Nazgul trying to <laughs> sniff them out. They pull a classic move of throwing something in the distance to create a sound sparking the Nazgul to chase it, giving our heroes some breathing room and a head start to safety. Watching The Last of Us Episode 2 in the museum sequence, it seems they could have used this tactic just endlessly to trick the clickers. Is there any insight as to why they don't use a super simple tactic often, other than it makes for bad storytelling? Somebody's played the game. Uh, yeah, the, the the game, you use a lot of bricks and bottles to uh, distract and, and lead enemies away and in the direction you prefer them to go. I don't know. I don't know why they don't put that in the show. Yeah, I I felt like that they gestured towards it when Joel knocked that statue over. I felt like that was to yeah. make a giant commotion to 
you know, mask his own footsteps. But yeah, like they had so much at that point stuff that they could just throw and kind of distract. And it's such an obvious game mechanic that it it felt as a game player like an intentional omission. Maybe yeah, they're saving yeah. that for like, oh, Joel's got a new wrinkle he grew on his ass for later. But uh, maybe yeah. <laughs> he's going to have some epiphany where he's like, God, I could ju- I could throw a bottle. What I if could, I threw I, a bottle? I could, I could be invincible. Oh my God, they, they go towards <laughs> sound. I can generate sound remotely. Uh-huh. Um, and it's not it's not like the be all end all of tactics. Right. You know, sure. you can sure. you can throw a bottle and still, you know, uh, trip trip on your shoelace and fall over and the, cr- the clickers uh-huh. be right on you and with the tentacles or the tendrils who the fuck knows so yeah joel's joel's having bad luck with the sound stuff so far like the the glass stuff mm. is just not working out for him right like it's in not. the museum he steps on the glass in the tower he puts down the glass and he hopes that intruders will step on it and he'll hear it and he doesn't and he's just too deaf yeah yeah yeah, it's the the breaking glass is not working, not working he's, for he's the old Joel. Orally challenged. Uh, John M was the first of many to write in and uh, talk about the device, the the mysterious coffee making device. He says it's called a percolator. You put the water in the bottom, right. the grounds go above it in a filteresque chamber. Then you boil it up. The bubbles it bubbles up and over into the collection reservoir like a reverse drip. It's a camping staple for coffee making. A couple other people mentioned that since hmm. it recycles the water again and again and again, that like you can make some pretty fucking strong coffee. Oh, uh, boy. it's like distilling coffee. Uh, and it's funny because when, when I was listening to the podcast, I actually you were trying to say, what do you call that thing? It's like, I don't know. It's like just percolating the coffee. It's called a percolator. <laughs> uh huh. Sure. Makes sense. Apparently, it's really popular in Italy. Have you, you seen any percolators in your travels to Italia? In Italy, I mean, in Italy they're drinking espresso, which it's called I, like a it's called like a Greccio. Hmm. I I don't, I don't maybe it's popular within like home kitchens and stuff. It's definitely not popular in gotcha. in cafes for gotcha. sure. Did you ever get to make that in Sicily? Maybe it's a Sicilian thing. No, I didn't. Uh, they percolate the shit out of coffee in Sicily. That's why mm-hmm. here. Uh, Troy says as a 50 oh boy you're gonna have to answer for this shit you've been talking too much shit against the elderly I as have 50, yeah you have you, and I get roped <laughs> okay. into it I'm is careful it not to thing? it's as a stairs mu- as, thing you know it's a stairs thing as a 53 yeah. year old I was compelled and I've, I've dodged I've ducked a couple of these because you've been making snide shots about Joel and his physical <laughs> fitness in this world and, and a lot of these middle aged men are not taking it Jim mm-hmm uh, mm-hmm. says, as a 53-year-old man, I was compelled to write in for the first time because of the comments made about how Joel or anybody should be able to easily scale 45 flights of steps. Let me get this straight. You guys think Joel, a man who's been fighting day-to-day for mere survival, thus has not had time to regularly get in his cardio at the local apocalyptic Gold's Gym while surviving on a spoonful of squirrel jerky and a can of 20-year-old ravioli a day, operating on zero minutes of sleep in the last 48 to 72 hours he's been driving, should be able to... <laughs> Easily do more than five flights of stairs. Oh, young man, you're in for a rude awakening in the years to come. Why are you being so I hard mean, on Joel, Jim? Uh, well, look, I'm not that young a man. You're 40. I understand what aging is. You barely made it through a 24-hour marathon of watching television. Uh-huh. That's with zero adrenaline, I will say. Uh, adrenaline's a hell of a drug. Uh <laughs> 
look, I, I think <laughs> I, here's how I think it should work. I think for every year that you are old, you should be able to climb one flight of stairs. So as you age, you actually are able to climb more stairs than you were the year before. <laughs> Uh, uh, okay. For, uh, forget the because you, because you've had more time to work out, right? You've had more time to grow your muscles. Yeah, I mean, it just makes yeah, sense. No, that's how it works. Uh, yeah. Forget the Tlu. Uh, do gym at baldmove.com for all that <laughs> stuff. You can just bypass the general box. Go right. Go right to the man that that doesn't understand his own biology. Look, he's been uh, eating Bill's. He's been eating Bill's food. Like the the those twenty four hours, those forty eight hours, whatever he's been awake, he's been just gobbling cans of beans and and spinach really i mean he's up. basically really yeah okay all right yeah also Gym he's been working out constantly up. like he's been lifting child bodies and throwing them in fires it's he's true. good he's Those good are, uh, awkward bundles to carry really uh all yeah. the unused muscle groups when you're carrying limp corpse children to the burn pile it uh the heaviest really bodies great. are the limp ones really great for the styration in your latissimus mm-hmm. dorsi they say yeah, you know, I saw that. And he does a squat every every child body he lifts. He does a squat too. So yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you got to lift lift up your legs, not with your back. Uh-huh. Uh, with those with those awkward kind of gawky kind of you know corpse bundles that you're you're shifting around. Maybe maybe that was a problem. He was climbing stairs with his back. You're supposed to do that with your legs, Joel. <laughs> yeah. Just that, just if you if you ever start to do your back, when they say put your back into it, that's that's a rookie <laughs> mistake. You keep your back out, put your legs in. Yeah. For everything. Uh, Dan Webb from Kingston, Canada says, I think this whole gasoline situation is the plot elephant in the room. Stopping and siphoning 20 year old gasoline from a random moss covered vehicle in an abandoned freeway. Kind of mm-hmm. ridiculous. <laughs> That's the thing. <laughs> we didn't talk about that. The vehicle that he's sticking this siphon into looks like it was buried in Mammoth Cave for 300 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it is seen better days. Uh, yeah, like the idea that the tank has not rusted out on this vehicle is almost too much to imagine. Um, I know Joel briefly touched on the degradation issue, but twenty years, no way. I accept that Federer probably has some limited refining capabilities, but random old cars on the road definitely not believable that the gas could still be used. I did a bit of online searching, and overall, it seems that even under carefully controlled storage and fuel stabilizer treatment conditions, you get three years max. I read that the U.S. strategic fuel reserves are rotated out after just six months. That being said, I guess suspension of disbelief is important when to maintain when watching a TV show about zombie mushrooms taking over the world. True. But still, every little bit of realism, I think, helps that suspension. Um, yeah. You know, when I played the first Last of Us, I didn't have the gas bug up my butt. I can't remember what first gave me the clue that, like, oh, gas doesn't last. Oh, it might have been, like, having a a, a lawnmower that you don't drain the gas over a winter, and then in the spring it's turned to jelly. Mm-hmm. And then to think that that, <laughs> that that is happening in every post-apocalyptic car, yeah. and yet, yeah, we're just going to we're just gonna siphon 20-year-old gas. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they brought too much attention to it in this show because I I'm in the same boat. I don't remember having a problem with it in the game, even when I played it yeah. recently, like a month ago. So, yeah, I wonder if they could have done it with biodiesel. Like, how long in a McDonald's gas and in, in so like a, the apocalypse comes, every fucking McDonald's in the country has a fry tank full of biodiesel, essentially. Mm-hmm. How long does that stuff go? Can you burn like rancid oil? 
Because I feel like animal fats and stuff like that, that stays good forever. Stays good for a while. I've heard that like diesel fuel or like jet fuel does not have the same problems that gasoline does. Like you can uh, essentially have underground lakes full of diesel fuel and it'll never go bad. But that might be because diesel just kind of sucks as a fuel. (laughs) Uh, Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't Hmm. know. Uh, These are just things I've heard. Now's the time to endure and survive. We'll be back with more Savage Starlight. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Just so we're clear about back there, it was either us or the ad. Welcome back to more Savage Starlight. Uh, Ryan A says, listening to the instant take, I was really surprised to hear two discerning viewers endorse the casting of casting of Melanie Linsky as a post-apocalyptic vigilante mob boss. Look, she's a fantastic actress and is in no way an indictment on casting a woman as a power player. I love Netflix's dark, and the majority of the power on that show is held by strong female characters. But Melanie Linsky's acting style is consistently meek and passive. She can go dark, but it's subversive and in clever ways, not through aggression and force. Completely strange credulity to show us this actress with this kind of whiny performance style of someone who looks like they manage a Wendy's where everyone called out sick on a Saturday. No way can she corral and lead an elite group of gun-toting Midwestern anti-government type psychos. Really know, morally man. loading our statements about we the people here, but uh, uh, what I, I I have a take on this. I wonder what you think. My take is I'm giving her a shot to see what she can do, A, and B, I want to give the writers a shot to see what kind of character they're creating because I, if you want to think of it in like archetypes, then yeah, she doesn't match this archetype of a revolutionary leader who's then going to turn into some government uh, at some point. I if they want to go for some other kind of character and break that archetype, I'm willing to give them a chance. So I want, I want to see what they do with it before I really judge it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I stand by what I say in the main podcast. Like, I think that there are a few ladies in U S government right now that could absolutely whip people into and, and, and lead quote unquote, a revolution. Mm Mm-hmm. But on the other side of that, oh, boy, I don't think they'd have much to offer. Uh, and mm-hmm. I feel like that is essentially what Melanie is playing here. Uh, mm-hmm. That And you can kind of see in there's like a panicky quality to when she's like, oh, this could be Henry. He he could have a radio, right? Yeah, th- that's a reasonable thing. And and uh, when she's trying to like stick her head in the sand about the bucking and heaving pavement situation mm-hmm. that she doesn't really have a handle um, and that maybe even like Perry is starting to see the cracks there. But like, I, yeah. I just think that th- I, I don't think you're supposed to see Melanie and go like, oh, that is a strong leader. I think you're supposed to see the cracks. Now, what blows my mind is that Melanie herself took to like Instagram and Twitter and wrote this whole post about how 
she was attracted to this role because it was a strong and powerful and non-conventional leader type and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, oh my God. I mean, either I've fundamentally misunderstood your character or you have. But I don't like, again, and I, I hope with or 12 years talking to his microphone, I've not given people opinion that I hate strong female characters <laughs> or sure. yeah. I wouldn't accept a, a woman as a, as, as a leader. Yeah. But I think this particular woman is not a great leader. And I thought that that's the story that's the, that the show was trying to tell me. I don't know. We'll see next well, week. She, but she uh, might I have more information weekend, too, tomorrow. right? I mean, she's read all the scripts. She's performed right. the the scenes. She might right. know more about this character than we do at this point, which is why I say like I'm holding off on really judging this character or this performance yet. Right. And I've seen like even kind of like uh, what I would say weak women be fairly strong in characters. I always think of like uh, I know you have no idea of the Harry Potter, you're whole blind to that uh, franchise, mm-hmm. but like Dolores Umbridge's character, I think is an extremely weak woman, but is in a role where she's able to wield a lot of power and be scary and effective, you know? Um, but I'd say she's a fundamentally weak person. And I kind of think the same thing with the Melly. So I, I was, I was kind of like, oh, I mean, yeah, weak people can find themselves in position of unimaginable power. I mean, look at Joffrey. Joffrey is a weak, weak person. <laughs> god um yeah you know i there's like tons of, of revolutions that have like been won and then lost by weak people uh but yeah i so yeah we'll have to see how it goes this uh and just just 24 short hours really um moving on peter from the denver quarantine zone had a similar thought here it says people seem to think uh that the uh, she talking about uh, kathleen here is not intimidating enough to be a leader in the society, which I think is a point in a traditional sense, but I believe what they're going for is showing how a Karen-type personality can thrive and dominate in the world. <laughs> Apologies to all the real-life women named Karen out mm-hmm. there. Uh, premise I find very plausible. This sort of people, as we see them in our current world, seem to exist only to try to control others, espouse their opinions, issue orders, and enforce rules. They're known to be up in people's business, quote-unquote, Seems like without the legal system and the mores of civil society in the way it would be a perfect environment for some of these types of people to flourish, to take advantage of the weakness and uncertainty of others. Uh, I wonder if episode five will give us any flashbacks or current details on Kathleen to further demonstrate these uh, character traits. Man, I don't know. I don't know how well Karen's would flourish because I feel like a lot of Karen's power comes from within a legal system and mores of civil society. Mm-hmm. you know yeah the, like, they're willing to go step beyond the boundaries of what most people are yeah. willing to do as far as civility goes yeah but in the apocalypse like, that's kind of out the window yeah, <laughs> you just imagine, get shot in the head like, <laughs> right imagine carrying leaning leaning out her front door <laughs> excuse me are you from this quarantine wow like just brain splattered against uh-huh. yeah that's yeah uh-huh you, you only you only get that kind of power as that type of person where you can use the official tools of power to sick, uh, you know, to, to to manipulate and sick on other people. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not know. getting a Karen vibe from her. I'm I'm getting the vibe I'm getting so far from this character is somebody who would not have preferred to be a leader, but had it kind of thrust on her when it became personal. But the the thing about her brother being beaten to death to me says right. like she didn't intentionally step into this role. It was just a bridge too far for her and yeah. something had to be done. And so she did it because uh, it became personal. So 
I could be wrong about that. It could it could be she was already in a leadership position within the revolution, yeah. and then her brother was beaten, and just worked out that way. It could way, be like a mama we'll bear situation where she saw something that so activated and triggered her in terms of her brother mm-hmm. or someone that she saw as like hers to protect that it's like you know been turned to this direction because i've seen that happen before where like you know even women who are pretty physically unimposing or whatnot will act fucking crazy if you like threaten their children or family in ways that are not necessarily <laughs> directly effective or even wise but like you know you could see if <laughs> okay. they had like a, a team of you know people behind them or community behind them uh, a sufficient outrage that could be generated that that would be really powerful and easy to ride and then like afterwards everyone's looking to you like well you started this right i I, and it feels like someone who was not campaigning for this position Mm -hmm. like they got caught up into something and doesn't really know how to proceed from here Mm mm-hmm but that's not necessarily even a. I I, I don't want to feel like this is like a feminine thing too, because like uh, yeah. who was that fucker that used to run Hilltop before Maggie and The Walking Dead? Gregory. Oh, Gregory right. was that same type of guy, weak as fuck. You know, he just he just relished it a little bit more. But yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. He had but, no business but, being in the position he was in. No. But people no, listened no, to no. him just sort of. Because no one he was in that lined position? up all the possible people and are like, this is the best one. Yes, this no. is the best one. It was a very peculiar set of circumstances that saw him in that position. So, I, like I said, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be a, a strictly gendered thing. Um, we've seen plenty of, of weak male uh, leaders. Um, I just mm-hmm. think, yeah, it's it's weird that, that that she's kind of holding herself up to be that. But I don't know. Like she could also be subverting or just enjoying shitting on people on Twitter because God knows it's fun. <laughs> Uh, Anthony says, my opinion on this could change after the next episode, but I really feel like the tension would be much higher in this episode if we didn't even see Kathleen's point of view. We'd just be with Joel and Ellie and seeing them problem solve a sudden threat uh, and even feel closer to them on their journey. I know they don't want to make the show a constant survival grind, but it felt like too much of a release valve without adding all that much understanding to the world that presumably Henry will provide in the next episode. I'm not sure I agree with this, Jim. What do you think? Um, I think what they're going to do with this is going to be more interesting because the the thing you're talking about here is what they do in the game. It's not it's not like POV from the, the quote unquote bad guys. Right. Right. Uh, You're basically with Joel and Ellie the whole time. So I, I think if they had gotten around to it next episode and left it out of this episode, that would have been fine. And it would have been pretty tense for Joel and Ellie. But I didn't have a problem with the way they did it. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm looking forward to seeing more of this community and, and what drives them and kind of where the show's going to come down uh, morally on these characters. See, I think that the Kathleen scene serve a similar purpose as Joel and Tess and Ellie observing the sea of fungus people in the streets of Boston. Like... You just got into a situation where from Joel and Ellie's perspective, they ran into a handful of people and they barely survived. They don't know what they've gotten Mm -hmm. themselves into. Then we go to a town square full of angry, agitated, recently liberated, gun-toting people. And it's kind of like Joel has stepped into this as surely as a tendril on a mushroom network. Hmm. And to see that, like, we don't have a particularly thoughtful solution oriented person on top makes me more afraid 
that Joel's not going to be able mm. to talk his way out or placate. Um, and there's just such a huge force disparity that that makes me actually more fearful for him, not less. But yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Um, let's see. Corbin says in response to the scene of Joel and Ellie eating 20 year old chef boy RD, I sadly have some related personal experience oh, as a kid. My dad owned a food warehouse and went out of business. And when going through the remaining stock, he found an 18 year old can of meatballs and marinara sauce. Yes. Suggested I eat it. And of course, being an idiot kid, I did. Surprisingly, I didn't get sick at all. And from what I remember, it wasn't half bad. I do mm-hmm. think Joel and Ellie could eat the 20 year old chef boy RD and be totally fine. <laughs> At least they have the apocalypse as an excuse. Yeah, it's it's my understanding that canned food literally will stay good for I don't know about forever, but for right, a shockingly long time, as it'll long stay, as the seal is intact. That's the thing. It'll stay good as long as the can itself does, right? Right. Because it literally can't degrade. There's there's no air, there's no bacteria to be exposed. Uh it's it's just mm-hmm. a hermetically sealed thing. I I've heard that the taste can get can go off Ugh. and maybe the nutritional value will eventually start to go down as the food itself begins to break down. <laughs> Which is but not, it's not a problem for rot. ravioli. It had none to begin <laughs> with, so yeah, it's ravioli is like people like, wow, can you believe the pyramids still stand after 5000 years? I'm like, what the fuck are they going to collapse into? If they collapsed into a pile, they would look like a pyramid. It's at its uh-huh. lowest gravitational potential energy. There's nothing to collapse to. Yeah, ravioli is like true. that. It's the yeah. lowest. The food's already done degraded. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they pre-degrade that food so that it yeah. can't do any harm to yeah. itself. It's got no columns. It's just a. It's just the. It's the food equivalent of rubble. Jesus. Dan <laughs> from Austin says, "I don't understand why Joel and Ellie didn't try to use cover of darkness to escape the city. I can't imagine power is on throughout the entire city, so there's probably large sections that are dark throughout the night. Once the sun goes down, use the cover of darkness to work your way out of the city on foot. Sleep during the day if you must, but nighttime is the best time to escape and evade." <laughs> Uh, this is true. All right, let's let's take this let's take this uh, first. Um, I think I mean they did right. They got they they you can't stay right where the scene of the crime is, so they quickly covered as much distance as they could, and then got off the street until nighttime. I don't know that it's a bad idea to climb a tower and get a lay of the land. Like, do you do you want to go towards where it seems like the most of the people are away? Or is there a big horde of infected? Is there another clogged highway that you need to know about? I I think mm-hmm. this is a great like get the lay of the land, sneak out the next nightfall and go proceed from there. Yeah, sure. If they want to take a day uh, just to get the lay of the land, I think that might make sense. I don't know how fast and furiously the. uh uh, Kathleen's group is going to search the city or the, the QZ. I would at least like for them to get out of the QZ because I don't feel like they were very far into the QZ. And the QZ seems to be well. Are are they even in the QZ? I think they're outside the QZ because you see the gates yeah. of the QZ, and it's kind of off to the side, and then they uh-huh. drive yeah. straight. So they might be outside of it, huh? I don't know, but yeah, they, they need to put some distance between themselves and Kathleen's group, but... If you overthrew the Fedra, why would you keep the QZ open like that? I would think that, like, right. the wall... Like, you would still keep the gates, like, the perimeter. 
maybe, maybe they not. destroyed the wall to some degree. Maybe maybe it's uh, not an effective QZ even with the gates closed anymore. Gotcha. That makes I don't sense. Know. The real the real issue was Joel got up five flights of stairs, realized it was gonna take him all night to go back down, so he said, Fuck it, let's keep going. <laughs> Uh, Dan from Austin also says it seems crazy that Joel didn't take anything from the truck when they left. In any survival situation, you always have a grab bag, which has your basics, your food, your first aid, your water storage or filtration, fire starter kindling, maybe ammo. The bag should be easy access and white, lightweight enough to quickly grab it and go. Ellie seems to have her backpack from the looks of it. Joel only has his revolver and flashlight, nothing else. I know the truck arrived pretty quickly after the crash, but it surprised me that Joel wasn't better prepared for a quick exit. Joel surely has his backpack. Because that's I exactly the recall, game. But my God, if he doesn't, what yeah, you have is like you always are able to get your to your backpack, which has your bare survival stuff and all the things that you're suggesting. So yeah, yeah. I would be surprised if we do not see Joel with a backpack for the rest of the series. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, I but, would too. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly what the backpacks are supposed to be. So I I, I bet I bet it's just an oversight that uh, maybe it's been out of frame or uh, I'm trying to think, I guess, like if he was the, the one scene where he should absolutely have it is at night when he's boosting Ellie into that duct. Like that's mm-hmm. everything that they're carrying. Clearly, I wonder if he has it in that scene. Um, Let's move on. To Michelle, Michelle K says, I woke up this morning with occurring imaginings of Bill and Frank, not in a tawdry slash fiction sense or a zombie show lore type of way. But of the two of them sharing a sweet winter moment that a one shot episode about 16 years together wasn't quite able to cover Bill and Frank playfully snowing, <laughs> playfully snowing throwballs. Bill and Frank playfully throwing snowballs at each other after a Massachusetts December snowfall. Frank serenading Bill with off-key but well-intentioned renditions of chestnuts roasting over an open fire. Bill and Frank having a brief argument about whether to dig up mom's uh, Bill's mom's Christmas decorations from the attic as December 25th draws near. And Frank winning said argument because, let's face it, Bill's an old softy at heart. Which then leads to Frank mining the attics of the boutique boutique and other Billville retailers for stored away holiday decorations to celebrate the season, much to Bill's dismay and secret amusement. Maybe they even invite Tess and Joel over for a holiday dinner or two over the years. Um, Michelle, I think Americans need to embrace the grand British television tradition of the Christmas episode. I think 90% of every television series should have Christmas episodes where even if their run is not during Christmas and December, mm-hmm. you can just look forward to. Yes, yes. I want to see Bill and Frank host J- Tess and Joel for a Christmas party. I want to see Joel with a big bag full of like transistors and shit to trade. Uh, and like, I, I yes, yes. All those things. They, I, I feel like they used to do this uh, even here in America. You're right. It, it's a definitely a British thing. Like shows will come back in the off season to do it. Yes. I, it'd be crazy if they did that now, though. There are 600 shows. What if every single one? Oh, my God. What would we do with too much year? Christmas content, Jim? I don't know if I could watch it all. It oh, would God, literally throw me that fucking briar patch. Hundreds of Christmas episodes. I don't know, man. It might be Christmas overload. Well, I mean, I just watch my favorites. I don't watch every fucking television show. Like, their fans would have their Christmas show, and I would have my Christmas show. But, like, who wouldn't be delighted if the day after Thanksgiving, just out of nowhere, 
a Bill and Frank 90-minute Christmas episode of The Last of Us dropped. No one, no one would be angry. Everyone would love that. Yeah. You get so that's... many subscribers, HBO Max. And for how how much could it how much could it possibly cost? It's a one fucking set and four actors if you get them all. True. I don't know. Uh, maybe they could maybe Star Wars could do something like that. Maybe a like special around the holidays. Now that's the know. monkey's paw curling, okay? Maybe there's <laughs> right. exceptions, okay? And mistakes have certainly been made. <laughs> But, you know, I trade the horror of watching the Christmas special for all of my favorite shows having Christmas episodes during Christmas. Yeah. I'd be surprised Um, if they didn't do this at least one year out of the 20, right? Yeah. Or like if they don't do the leftovers, they got so many other friends like a Harley Quinn Christmas special would be pretty fucking rad, right? Oh, yeah. I just mean like Bill and Frank must have done this one year. Oh, they must have. Yeah, they, they there's no way Frank is not celebrating Christmas. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Uh, Cassie says, as a non-game player, it's beginning to feel like an overrated show to me, not because of the character development or world building, which have been excellent, but because four episodes in, that seems to be all there is. This is the dissenting email. Uh, for me, it's missing the key ingredient of an intriguing plot. One, the plot's super simple. It could be summarized in a couple of sentences. Parenthetically, tried doing that after episode four of Hot D. There is no real point two. There's no real B or C plot to break up the story, which can make the main plot feel a little slow. Also, the basic premise of the story makes it super obvious they will eventually form a close bond. So there's no real will they, won't they get along tension in the A plot. It's just a question of how long it will take. Three, they've taught us that every character except their main two are very disposable. Why bother learning anything about this Kathleen or Henry character when I would bet good money they won't be part of the storyline within an episode or two? Same as Sarah, Robert, Marlene, Tess, Frank, Bill. The main two characters have the thickest of plot armor on at all times. Who cares if someone comes at them with a gun or takes them hostage or a clicker attacks or if they lose their supplies? You know for sure that they will survive and carry on their trip. Five, you can tell how anemic this plot is by your feedback episode. They're using our show against us, Jim. How dare they? How do they? I want to hear this. The vast majority of feedback thus far in the non-spore lore sections has been about fungal biology and or outside mechanics, uh, i.e. the amount of drugs in the wine. There's not much to say about the story or characters. I also think viewership numbers have been inflated by the built-in game franchise and the fact that there's literally nothing else on until March. After a gluttony of big-name shows in the summer and fall last year, the winter has been very dry, and that's the only reason I'm giving this a try. You're a poet, Casey. Cassie didn't even know it. Um, I will agree with that last point. The this is a little bit Titanic and Avatar. This is a this is James Cameron strategy of run this shit when there's really nothing else on, and you're going uh, to suck all what little oxygen out of the room out of the room. And I will agree with the first point, which is the plot of the game is very thin. Simple. I I just think. Yeah, I, I think it is a very straightforward, simple plot in the game. A lot of the the reason why it's such a great story in in gamers' minds is because of the way it resolves, um, mm. and, and it's gonna take some time to get there. I think they're very smart to do things like the Bill and Frank episode yeah. because that does give us, you know, not not necessarily B and C plots so much, but like something else to care about other than this journey across the country, because that's really 
that's the summation of the plot is the girl and man journey across the country as they bond. Um, yeah. And then there's stuff that happens at the end. So yeah, yeah I, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's a very thin plot. I, I think they're doing a great job telling a story that I care about though, uh, with such a thin plot. Yeah. And I like, I, I don't know what to say about the plot armor stuff because I will say that the first time I played the last of us, it always felt as if, Joel or Ellie could die at any particular time at any particular dramatic moment. And there was a lot of dramatic moments because, uh, you know, when you're playing the game, you don't have the hindsight of knowing when it's going to end, you know? Um, True. Yeah. And for good measure, you can die a lot in the video. I did see Joel and Ellie die <laughs> yeah, quite a yeah. few times along the way. Um, but I, I never thought that, and then, you know, like I, you know, uh, does that go to the end? Does Joel and Ellie make it all the way out to Wyoming? Like that would be spoilers and stuff. But I would say the playing the game, like I felt like it could be death could be around any corner. And then when you get into mm-hmm. like sequels and stuff, then who the fuck knows? Um, and I feel like that's like good shows can do that. Like I never, in one level, I kind of knew that like Walt and Jesse couldn't die in Breaking Bad, but there is at least a half a dozen times where I felt despite that it could have happened yeah yeah. and maybe they are going to take this maybe this is going to be the last season because that was the other intrigue of breaking bad is like are they going to think at in things after season four are they going to so like i think that and you know the other things like back when i think about my earliest experience of watching star trek at some level i had to know that like Riker and picard aren't going to die but like a good Mm -hmm. show can still make you feel concerned for those characters um the other thing is like I other the other as I don't think mentally people are really coming to grips that this is a one and done, you know. Like there is a particular place they want to get to the story. They're going to get there in nine episodes, and then that's done. And then there's going to come back and they're going to tell the story of the Last of Us two left Last of Us part two, and then that's going to be done. This doesn't have designs on being a five or six or seven season mm-hmm. run, and I feel like people are treating it like oh this is the next big prestige drama, so there's going to be a shit ton of it. Where are we? It's, it doesn't have to be that sturdy. It doesn't have to carry 70 hours of television. You know, it just has to be mm-hmm. entertaining for eight and a half. So. Yeah. And I don't I don't know where this thing's going to end up in the scale of like top 10 television. Like, I doubt this is going to dethrone the, la- the the leftovers for me, which that's my number one show of all time. But like. It's entirely possible that people think this is a really great show that was kind of like, you know, uh, uh, um, had its moment in time and then it just never makes anyone's top tens for the weaknesses you say. I don't know. I don't know. It's many people's consensus top five video game, but there's a lot less competition for best story in video game title than there is in sure, you know, sure. television and movies. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll but, see how it plays uh, out. I just think it's like I said, I think it's real good. I had high expectations and high hopes. And so far, it's executing on all those. And I don't know what it's like to be a non video game watcher. It's just kind of like bewildered trying to figure out why everyone's loving this four episodes. in. so mm-hmm. either keep watching or don't, you know, um, Maddie says, what do you make of Bruce Straley being absent from any mention of the show? He's also a co-creator of the game, but I find it odd. He's never mentioned by the show simply because he was never credited as a writer. I didn't know about this controversy, but I read up on it before the feedback episode. Are you aware of this? No. So I guess Bruce Strally was roughly 50-50 of the game, The Last of Us, and is where he's one of the founding members of Naughty Dog. He'd worked on all the Uncharted's, worked on Uncharted up through episode four, 
or Uncharted 4. That process burnt him out so much he left Naughty Dog. Apparently, mm-hmm. between Neil Struckman or Bruckman, Druckman and him, mm-hmm. Neil did the story and Bruce did all of the set pieces and the action and the programming and the AI and all the things that made it like work on that level. And before this television show came out, that him and Neil would always share co-credit when everyone say you're the creator. It's like, oh, yeah, me and Neil, blah, blah, blah. Bruce feels very used that he thought he contributed to half of The Last of Us, left Naughty Dog in good terms because he'd worked there for 15 plus years and done five successful video games with them. And now there's an HBO show and they want to do this in The Last of Us 2. And it's one thing to not be created as the writer, but like to not be created as the co-creator of the game, probably screw him out of quite a bit of money. Sure, sure. And he's not attacking Neil. He's attacking like Naughty Dog, in particular, the industry itself. He's like, this is a good reason why we should have a union. You know, like we shouldn't be doing this ad hoc onesie twosie like, oh, well, is he a director? Is he a co-creator? What like and I got to say, I'm pretty sympathetic Mm -hmm. to all those arguments. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. I, I, I do think like just because he maybe didn't have his hand as much in the story as Neil did. It doesn't mean he didn't contribute to it in any way. You know, it's like, I I don't know. It's like if you were going to go and remake or adapt some uh, novel. Yeah. To, to the thing. And like the, (laughs) there was a a team of two people like, like if Ty and Daniel from the expanse. Yeah. Credit. And one of the, one of those people is like the actual, like, writer writer who does like the writing and the other person i, I think ty is more of like a an idea guy and set right. pieces like c- kind of with uh yeah neil and neil and um the other guy shit what's his name again uh bruce bruce, bruce yeah uh it would be weird for ty not to get any credit on the show simply because he wasn't involved in the production of the actual show but the novels he was intimately involved in yeah so i I don't know. I I'm kind of with him. I think it's it's kind of BS. Well, like if Stephen Stephen King got all the credit for the 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 Shining, you know, like well Stanley Kubrick directed the damn thing. Like yeah, you wrote it and came up with all the characters and all that kind of stuff. But like who expressed it onto the film was this other guy, the director. Shouldn't you know? Like it'd be weird to mention. I guess either one of them without the other. And if they ever did. But I guess that's the complicated thing. If someone wanted to do a story in another medium based on The Shining, if they wanted to do a Shining film series, would they have to go mm-hmm. – or, or, or a TV series, would they have to go to Steve, Stephen King or would they have to go to Stanley Kubrick? Uh, it probably depends on what story they were telling because if it's yeah. based on The Shining as told by Steve or Stanley Kubrick, they'd probably have to go to Stanley as well as Stephen um, right that's what I'm saying though they use like it's mostly because I think that's essentially what they did with Dr. Sleep is like that's a story where it continues yeah. it uses a lot of the Kubrick's de- design mm-hmm. um, but well, it almost story. It, but not the story it, it, it adapts it's, it's a sequel to The Shining the book but it's still it's like yeah I they probably did have to go to Kubrick's estate to get the likenesses of like the ghost girls and you know some of the stuff that he used explicitly to his concept of it I imagine 
Maybe not. Hollywood's kind of fucked up. I there's all kinds of immoral deals done in that. <laughs> sure, sure. No, it's been it's, said. It's been said. It's a dirty business. I, I get it. If if like there's a true separation of duties, right? If, if like because that's the thing. You see this all the time in in film. Um, you see where like people will be credited as like creating the characters. Um, or the sc- writing specifically the screenplay or writing yeah, the original the concepts, material that yeah. it was adapted from. like, And all those people get credits for their uh-huh. particular participation in it. It's If there's like a true separation of duties, if Neil was the guy who sat down, wrote the story, start to finish, I don't have a problem with this. If If Bruce was literally just coding the thing, doing like contributing to music, contributing to other things, mm-hmm. And didn't touch the story, that's fine. But like that's almost certainly not true. Even still, when they when you look in these shot for shot remakes of some scenes in The Last of Us, they are adapting not so much what Neil was doing, but what sure. Bruce was doing. Yeah. You yeah. know, because he was the guy who was directing and leading the animation teams and making all that stuff happen. So uh-huh. it feels weird to me. And if I was Bruce, I'd feel pretty. He's probably already a wealthy dude um, and sounds like, you know, but, but I, I, that, that I would be all kinds of salty. I'm at. Yeah, all it's, kinds not, it's of probably salty. not about the money for him because he, he left Naughty be, Dog in but... 2018. Imagine if like I had left Bald Move yeah. in 2018 because I was burnt out or whatever. And you'd optioned the Bald Move story. And then it's just <laughs> Jim Jones. There's no Aaron there at all. It's a uh, uh-huh. Bald Move created by Jim Jones. Like, motherfucker. OK, you've been doing yeah. it for the last four. But there was a guy. Yeah, I could see. I could see being super salty about that. For sure. Especially the kind of hours and and that the, they he probably put into that game too. Oh yeah, uh, that's going to do it for our non spore lore section. We do have some spore lore because this is based on original material, and uh, people have opinions and thoughts based on that. Uh, if you want to send us feedback, it's tlou t l o u at baldmove.com. Don't forget this Friday tomorrow there. HBO is releasing episode five a couple of days early because they don't want it to overlap the Super Bowl. So it's good news for us tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the Last of Us will premiere their fifth episode. And immediately after it airs around 10 p.m. Eastern, we are going to take to the microphones and do our instant take episode. Everyone gets to enjoy that. If you're a club member, you can watch us tape it live. And you can participate in the second half and get access to the second half, the instant talk, where you essentially post stuff in the chat and we react to it. Uh, If that sounds like a good time, go to support.baldmove.com to find out how you can become a club member and get access to that as well as other uh, expanded bonus audio options, ad-free feeds, etc. All right. We will see you hopefully then for Friday. If not, we'll have the full podcast out uh, Monday. One day early this week, again, taking advantage of this uh, hurry-up offense that HBO is running against the NFL. Uh, now on to the spore lore section. Watch out for that fungus. We'll be right back with more Savage Starlight. We found something to fight for. This podcast, welcome back to Savage Starlight. Hopefully everyone's had enough time to switch off. And if not, too bad. Victoria says... Uh, what I think is going on, she's a video game player, she clarifies, with this crazy mm-hmm. bunch of concrete, is a bunch of infected have gotten trapped underground somewhere, perhaps in a basement or sewers, something, and they've been digging. With all the chaos going on in the quarantine zone and how these hunters have been harvesting goods, the noise levels have to have been so loud 
We know the fungus has one goal and it's to spread by any means necessary. So why wouldn't that mean it would try to force its host to dig if it were trapped? Uh, in the game where Joel, Ellie, Henry, and Sam escape from the city, they decide to go into the sewers where we learn about Ish and his failed community. Once you get past the main doors to the community, you get ambushed by countless infected, most of them stalkers and clickers. I wonder if this community is where those infected are coming from. The sewers mm-hmm. really aren't that far from the QZ city in the game, and when you get through it, the hunters catch back up to you in the game. I haven't seen the next week on, but I will be extremely disappointed they don't find a way to get this this community situation brought into the game because it's one of the best parts. Yeah, it's of one the of the more series. memorable moments for me for sure great storytelling where your gradual dawning Uh, of what happened here and if that somehow bites kathleen and her group in the ass because this is a whole bunch of people who just wanted to be left i yeah to be to be left alone or to hide out and to have a sense of community and family and it it somehow is biting them in the ass that would be pretty cool mm mm-hmm yeah i I don't know we'll see yeah that's literally biting them in the ass because yeah those zombies don't play. How long does an ass bite take to infect you? Oh, ass bite. Boy, in the gluteus maximus, that's uh, that's an 8 to 12 hour infection time. You know? <laughs> Damn. All right. It's a lot of tissue to get through, but but rich supply of blood vessels and, and nerves, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. There's a lot <laughs> the of muscle ass, back there. That's ass all I fame know. for its nerve endings and blood supply. <laughs> yeah. 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 The ass is the most sensitive part of the body. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. Um... <laughs> What the fuck? Okay, Tyler P says, hey guys, we're not 100% sure who Ellie is referring to in episode four when she's uh, referred to killing someone before. She's not wanting to talk Mm -hmm. about it to Joel, which implies whomever it was has really affected her. I think it's Riley. Obviously, Ellie did not murder Riley, but after Ellie and Riley are bitten, when Ellie asks what to do, Riley says, let's wait it out. We'll be all poetic and lose our minds together. Left behind, we never get to see Riley turn. I think when Ellie has to kill someone, it's once Riley turns and Ellie is forced to put her down. I can imagine killing your best friend and first love has been extremely traumatic and it would make sense why Ellie does not want to talk to Joel about it. So make a lot of sense, especially given like the question she has about do you think anybody, they're still Uh, in there. Uh, She might be feeling like she had to like actually kill her best friend. Yeah, as opposed to kill the monster that was inhabiting her best friend. So. Yeah, no, I could, I could. That's believable. I was playing with the idea the other day of like, what if she's fibbing? What if she is saying mm. this isn't her first time, just to kind of like appear older and more mature to Joel to to kind of fit in to like kind of like don't worry about me kind of. I suppose that's possible she doesn't want to be seen as a kid she wants to have more responsibility and more trust um god it's hard to i feel like it's hard to back into that scenario now that we've we've driven past it because like what is the scene i'm trying to d- d- devise a scene where she could explain that without literally explaining that without being like well, how I lied, it, and I lied because I wanted to be seen by you as someone stronger and more, right? Yeah, 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 more like you, and like. <laughs> I think boy, it's one of those things where you just have to surmise. But the, the the thing is, like, if she's literally being true that I've done this before in the context of killing an infected, then what is going on in the basement of that C store? Because that felt like yeah. an experimental first time too. Do you think she's referring to that? 
Oh, like you think that not. this is my first time, but I actually did one right underneath your nose, old man. Uh, no. In my mind, it's more about killing a person, living human beings, or or things that she might see as human beings. Well, then that's the thing I can't square. Tyler's the literal text of Tyler's email, where it's like you know, it's like if if she kills a person before they turn it's someone they cared about, how would that be harder than killing some rando that's trapped in rubble? And why would she be wondering well, about if it was her best know, friend? I think that would right. be different. Right. Yeah. Like I, so I it's think... like Shaun of the dead where Sean refuses to kill his mom because uh-huh. even, even though she's a zombie, obviously uh, just simply because he, it's her, his mom, you know, I still can't explain the moment like the, the the mushroom person just seems like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe she was but like, so so if she killed if she killed Riley before she turned into a mushroom person, then then why? Then, okay yeah, you've already killed someone before. Why would you fuck around with the mushroom person if you hadn't and you killed them after they turned and you're curious about like, is a person is a person really all gone? And she cuts and sees that they're full of mushroom. That makes a little bit of sense. But. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, maybe that that is that does explain everything. It could, it could. Um, that is going to be it. That we do have two emails for oh three emails for the super spore lore edition. This oh. is only for video game players who've made it through the Last of Us Chapter Two or Part Two. So if you have not played the second game, uh, you better get going. And I'm not going to give you as much time because you should be adept at playing quick time events. You should be an uh, old <laughs> uh-huh. hand. At being able to get to your iPhone and press triangle before uh, the clicker that is this podcast <laughs> spoils you. All right, super spoiler. Lore. Um, Tyler continues. He's, he's, he's got to take the spans both editions. Uh, after finishing your feedback episode for episode three, you were wondering if Ellie could infect others. Assuming the show doesn't change this, part two answers the question in at least two places. At one point, mm-hmm. you can read Ellie's journal in a flashback that her and then girlfriend Kat kisses Ellie. Ellie ends up staying up all night, worried that she would turn, but thankfully realizes she didn't. She bite her tongue off? What What was the well, deal? Well, I mean, I imagine if you're a 13 or 14, 15-year-old girl and you know you carry this thing, uh, you, I mean, hell, have you ever kissed, have you ever tried it? Could you, could you swear in a stack of Bibles that kissing someone wouldn't spread the virus? Or the, I'm sorry, the fungus. Oh, no, no, certainly. But but I think about it in terms of like uh, the spread of HIV, right? You don't get that from kissing. Uh, you don't. You but get you that can from... get disease from kissing, just to be clear. Just oh, you oh can't totally. Get AIDS. Yeah, yeah. You can't right. Get AIDS. So this could be a lot like that, right? Where. Right. Okay, a kiss doesn't do it, but maybe if she yeah. literally bit them in the throat <laughs> and there was blood exchange or something, that could definitely do it. But I'm glad you got to that point know. because Tyler also says. Uh, in the second instance, it was also answered in the big fight in the theater with Abby. Ellie bites Abby. We then oh, jump forward okay. to the Santa Barbara segment of the game for well over a year later, and we see that Abby is fine. Well, I don't know if I'd call her fine, All right. but she's certainly not turning into a fungus. Could the show change this? Sure. But until we see otherwise from the show, I'd go with what the game already has answered for us. So I, I, for, I obviously knew that, but I'd forgotten. Yeah. Ellie yeah, biting Abby that. case fucking closed as far yeah. as. The last of his universe so far, that's not uh, she's not passing on this infection. Stu, uh, last week, you two had talked about Abby and how the show will handle season two. What I kept thinking about was The Walking Dead and how they treated Negan. 
I fear it's going to be even harder for The Last of Us fans who are able to get into Abby's story. <laughs> as you two mentioned, it's different when you're actually playing the characters as opposed to watching them on TV. Forbes just posted an article about them fearing that The Last of Us will fall into the same trap Walking Dead did with Negan. And this is an article by Paul Tassi uh, about Walking Dead makes me worry about The Last of Us Season 2. Paul Tassi, I don't know, dude. I read this article, and I don't know that I can agree with his conclusions. So here's two paragraphs that are relevant. Uh, the writer here in Forbes says, For show watchers, I, it didn't matter that this sequence was pulled almost frame by frame from the source material. He's talking about Glenn being executed by Negan. Down mm-hmm. to Glenn's eyeball popping out of his head. It was the fact that they killed Glenn and the way they killed him, which became such a massive turnoff that many people stopped watching the show entirely. That's how devastating and gross it was. And it wasn't just talk, even though anecdotally, I know a lot of people who said they stopped watching when Negan killed Glenn. It's also reflected in the n- numbers. Glenn's death episode is the most watched episode in series history. And then immediately the next week, the show lost 5 million viewers and declined every subsequent season after that. It never recovered its lost viewership. So I think this is a pretty myopic reading of the history of The Walking Dead. Uh, Number one, people were infuriated about the way they handled Glenn, but I think it has a lot more to do with him crawling under a dumpster Mm -hmm. and the fact that there was already a fake-out death by Abraham than it is that people just got to the part where Negan beat the the death, beat, beat the death, beat the life out of Glenn and decided, oh, this is too much. This is way too much. Also, that is such a dishonest framing that like it was the highest rated episode and they lost 5 million viewers immediately. Mm-hmm. All throughout season five, this show pulled 12 to 11 million viewers. And then it spiked up to 14 at the series finale because people were wanting to see this scene. Mm-hmm. And then when they played the scene the next year, it was the most it, it got up to like, I don't know, 17 million people watching it and immediately crashed back down to five. They lost five million viewers to 12 million, which is exactly where they were. And they stayed between right. 11 and 10 million all that season. The massive dropout happened after that because they did not conclude the Negan tale, but they yeah. inexplicably kept it going for a whole other 16 episode season. So like. They're not going to do that. We're not going to get the eight <laughs> fucking the seasons before mm-hmm. we get to the turn of the Abby storyline with this show. It's an impossible situation to replicate. And I think this uh, Forbes article is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. As, as two people who were there covering it day by day, we got the receipts. There's like yeah, 190 I, I, billion <laughs> podcasts over on the Watching Dead feed that right. testify to this. And here's the thing. The, the other thing I want to point out, Craig Mazin had nothing to do with the writing of The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead was not a Ain't failure it. because people didn't like to see a character killed and then sit with the person who killed them f- for a couple of episodes. They did it because the show fucking sucked. That's right. It was terrible. Season after season, it kept getting worse and Mm -hmm. worse. And eventually, people are going to tune out of that shit. A, we don't have the time for this show to get worse and worse. It's only going to be two seasons long. But B, (laughs) it's got somebody who gives a damn about the story that they're telling. And there is no way in hell that Craig Mazin is going to write anything on the level of a Walking Dead episode in the next he could do 15 seasons of this show and he'd never write those episodes because they're garbage and he doesn't write garbage. 
And he'd never do 15 episodes seasons because I don't think you could do 15 seasons of anything and not have it be garbage. But uh, but if anybody I, could, it's Craig Mazin. It, probably I, like Craig that's Mason. that's where I'm. Well, that's I'm thing. It's like also like the other thing is like yeah, what if Frank Darabont was still running The Walking Dead? Would that right. should have fly? But no, we we but were he four wouldn't show have done the fake out cliffhanger bullshit. Like right. the only reason so many people showed up is because of fake fake out cliffhanger bullshit that they were doing time and time again. Right. That's not what the show is going to do at all. Yeah. So. It, yeah. I, it was not I, all I holding I trust hands in Kumbaya land when you Walking Dead got those 18 million people watching. There was people oh, openly God, no. scornful of the process by then. So, yeah, I don't know. I felt like that that was bait. And there's just that's like this is along the lines of like, what if they turn on the large hard drawn collider and it turns into a black <laughs> hole and sucks the earth into it? Like, yeah, I guess uh-huh. anything's possible, motherfucker. But yeah, mm-hmm. things been running and we're still here. So. Uh, Kiki from Canada has a another theory, the latest theory on how they can crack the case of Abby, how they can coat Abby, the the, the bitter pill that is Abby to swallow in a candy coat. Ravioli? Uh, Stick her in a can with ravioli. <laughs> Abioli. I want a 20-year-old <laughs> can of abioli. Goes oh, down smooth. Uh, okay. We is that what they were trying to do at the, that final level? Are they trying to they're trying to make they're trying to make canned avioli? Uh, anyway, forget it. Forget strike it from record. Uh, start <laughs> with the season of Abby instead of Ellie, specifically the parts in Seattle. Interesting. You come back. Part two of The Last of Us. There's no Joel. There's no Ellie. It's just this. This just Abby. Abby woman in Seattle. What okay. the fuck are we doing? Mm-hmm. Never say who she killed or why, but make vague references about her getting revenge and it feeling empty. It's a post-apocalypse after all. She could be talking about anybody. You build mm-hmm. up sympathy for Abby as her friends get picked off one by one by some unknown, unstoppable force. You show us every flashback except for the one about her dad. Watch her take care of Lev and Yara. Watch her uh, caring for them to the point where she refuses to participate in the WLF's genocidal campaign, even when her own life is threatened. She and Liv mirror Joel and Ellie, although I think Abby's outwardly warmer, so audiences would take to her pretty fast. Then with her final flashback is the one where her father and uh, his death at Joel's hands, revealing Ellie as the person who's been slaughtering Abby's friends, including her extremely pregnant friend and her ex-boyfriend, not to mention all the sweet doggos. Then ending with the we let you live and you wasted it line. I think that would hit hard. There'd be so many questions. Who did you let live? What happened? Why is Ellie here at all? Then you can start back where the game does, flashing back to Dak Jackson with Ellie's part of the story. It's easier to tell, sell an Abby to Ellie perspective swap than an Ellie to Abby one, especially in a show. They could also intercut some of Ellie's flashbacks with Joel to reconnect the narrative, or they could straight up lie and make it seem like this is an anthology series in a different place with different people. Imagine a freak out when Ellie was revealed. It would rock. What do you think of this approach, Jim? I think I like this. I think I like this a lot. In my one worry is how do you keep this secret? But I guess that's that's already true. You can't. Like, you, 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 you the keep game it for the exists, secret for the so. people who want to play along with the game. You know, who right. want to like when I say play along with the game, I mean like do reasonable precautions about getting against it being spoiled. Right. Right. Uh, I yeah, I think this is a really good like make you make you sympathize with Abby before. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does fundamentally change. The I feel like feeling. you're 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 working it's, your way because I I when I was reading this, I'm like, oh my ah, god, this is a great way to get the audience to accept Abby. It but is. then I thought, is that what they're going for? 
right in the do game they want you to ch- just easily swallow abby or do they want to have you to where you fundamentally loathe this character that you're in ellie's position that you want to see her die she's taking something and you are forced to walk in her shoes despite that and are gradually like it might only appeal to half as many people but those people will have twice as strong as a an impression Mm -hmm. on what they want you to realize and if this is going to be the final season of the show do they care if people tune out do they care if they lose those half? That's the other liberating people, thing about right? being so in and out with this shit. Like if people if, if right. like season two is divisive and polarizing, like kind of like I, I think that's the I think the, the leftovers more and more people are waking up to the brilliance. But there was barely anybody watching that show in the beginning. Almost all of your favorite television reviewers hated it. It didn't get very mm-hmm. much notice on like award times and stuff like it. It, it, it wasn't that, you know. So like, but that's fine. It's fine to make a polarizing show that nobody loves. If the people that really attach to it and identify with it really fucking connect and it hits them hard. And I feel like that's what The Last of Us 2 is. And if not every show that the the company releases has to be a mega hit. Um, yeah. And this is where I get scared because like the creatives might want to do this. This is bold. This is interesting. This is something that isn't done much typically because it could turn off viewers and that is always something to be avoided. Yeah. The, the creators might want to do it. I'm worried about the money people, uh, especially with discover taking over, uh, God. the HBO operation. It's if, if they Disco have shown Max, that they are very risk averse. I'm, I don't know, man. Is it risk averse to give the creators of something this big the money to just go ahead and do this? You know, hey, you know, whatever your instincts are. Like, if it's almost guaranteed to turn people off and yeah. and that they will but unsubscribe they to, from HBO in. Max because of it, yeah, that's that reaction's baked in. Like, they, they want to fundamentally. I don't know. I like I well, said, that's a problem, I right? I really like the solution that Kiki has here. I just don't know that it would. I would that the people, if it successfully worked, that they would have the same experience that I felt playing the video game. And I feel like people watching the show are going to feel exactly the same as I did at the end of The Last of Us. If you make Abby more palatable through changing the order of storytelling events, it's going to fundamentally change the story. And I don't know if I like that. Huh. I would much rather. Half the people like like if there's ends up 10 million people watching The Last of Us, if five million of those people in The Last of Us season two fucking hate it. As long as they capture what I think is the core experience of The Last of Us two. And it would be bold, I think, to just throw you into Abby's shoes after having killed Joel. It's like, yeah, it's hard. to It's it's, it's really hard to fathom like uh-huh. the amount of. Oh my God, we're going to be in the middle of this, the podcast too. Like that feedback episode, you think the greens and the blacks were at each other's throats? <laughs> Holy shit. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, I think it's going to be controversial the end of this season yeah. as oh, well. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. it's, it, yeah, it's going to, a lot of people are going to be talking about the show for those reasons. People and came I'm out against Bill it. Frank being selfish. Wait until we see. Uh-huh. The outrage over Joel's mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. 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 You and I might disagree on that too. That'll I think be fun. We probably will. Yeah. <laughs> uh but yeah, like I said, I think it's 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 a great a great effort at getting people to care about Abby. I just 
don't know if that's what at the end of the day I really is the most important part. Like, you know, I'd rather turn people away from the fully leaded version of the story than to water it down. Uh, but that's just my opinion. What do you guys think? Tlu at baldmove.com is how you get in touch with us. Uh, Tlu, T-L-O-U at baldmove.com. Of course, we'll be, be back Friday with the instant take and instant talk. If you don't want to wait until the instant take comes out, watch us record it live. Support.baldmove.com. Uh, to find out how you can sign up for the club and get access to the instant talk sessions. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll be back on Monday for a full episode uh, breakdown like we do. Probably be back to the schedule after that. Feedback on Thursday. I don't know that we get anything by advancing it to Wednesday, but uh, should be fun. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you very soon. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. Bye. <laughs>